We're in the midst of a series in Acts that is really tracking the movement of the gospel throughout the first century, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, evidenced in many different ways. One scholar, Larry Hurtado, wrote an entire dissertation entitled, Why on Earth Did Anyone in the First Three Centuries Become a Christian? Which actually gives some indication on how unique this movement was. And we've seen already, as we've looked at the first few chapters in Acts, this movement of the gospel. And what we've seen in Acts, and what we see actually even today, is this. When there is external progress of the good news, there is, without question, opposition. Oftentimes, what we see when there is external advancement, there is internal strife and resistance. And we see that yet again here in Acts chapter 4 this morning. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John have healed a lame cripple outside the temple. They did so uh, influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit for God to affirm his goodness and his authority in and through them and to establish their witness. Then Peter preaches a pretty fantastic sermon that we looked at last week that was a Christ-centered sermon. And now Peter and John have been put uh, under arrest uh, by the officials, the religious and government officials, uh, because of what they've done. They're experiencing opposition. They have healed. They have preached the truth. Now, They're under the gun, and that's where we find them in Acts chapter 4. So stand with me as we read this narrative this morning about the gospel progressing in Acts chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, that is Peter and John, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised for the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak to anyone in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jason Isbell is a singer-songwriter, one of my favorites. Currently, he's got a long history of music in his life, and he actually has a long history of drug and alcohol addiction in his life. Over the last five years, he has experienced resurrection personally in his life. He's experienced redemption and renewal from addiction, and that has also coincided with a rather meteoric rise in his musical career as well. Last Sunday evening, Jason Isbell was inclined, compelled to take to Twitter and tweet this, there's nothing like a comeback. Always makes me happy to see somebody get their junk, though that's not what he said, together when things looked impossible. Hashtag Tiger Woods. It's a pretty amazing Sunday for me, particularly, who loves the sport of golf, who has followed Tiger throughout his whole career as we are essentially the same age. It had been five years since arguably the greatest golfer that's ever played the game had won a tournament. And last Sunday, after a fantastic season, a fantastic season of near misses, so close to victory on multiple occasions, including in majors, here, the greatest golfer of all time, seemingly past his prime, is in the midst of resurrection, is in the midst of comeback. To say that Tiger Woods has experienced brokenness in the last 15 years is an understatement. He's experienced holistic brokenness, relationally, physically, culturally, even relatively speaking, work with me here, monetarily. And here he was last Sunday at Eastlake Country Club in Atlanta in a very uncharacteristic scene, since the PGA never lets other tournaments do this, he comes up in the last group on the 18th fairway before the hole is finished. And if you did not see this or have not seen this, and even if you don't care about golf, you need to watch this. You need to watch this video. You need to see the picture of this swarm of people that essentially looks like a college football stadium has emptied their stands to take down the goalpost, and they are following him up the fairway as he approaches number 18 to win the tournament. There's nothing like a comeback. There's nothing like a victory that is birthed out of brokenness. There's something about brokenness that emboldens us. There's something about brokenness that creates humility. There's something about realizing it's okay to not be okay 
that gives us fuel and passion and renewal and redemption. And today in Acts chapter 4, we see that personally in the life of Peter. Because you understand that Peter was a broken man. We talked last week how fantastic and unique it was in Mark's gospel upon the resurrection. When the tomb keeper at the graveside is talking to women about Jesus. These women came to see Jesus. And this man beside the tomb is saying, oh, he's not here. He's risen. And in fact, you need to go tell people. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, he says, you need to go tell the disciples in general. And then Mark happens to mention, and Peter. Two simple words that proclaim the good news of the gospel. Why did Peter get singled out there? Because Peter was Jesus' arguably best friend, and Peter at Christ's death did not show up. He was not there. Peter denied Jesus at his death. Jesus is risen from the grave. Peter hears this. And then can you imagine what his life was like for those days that went after this? Can you imagine how much he was longing to interact with Jesus, the risen Jesus, and to experience some sort of reconciliation or renewal or redemption, you know, from that thing that didn't go so well, like, you know, the death on the cross and me acting like I didn't know you. Can you imagine? I mean, there's, there's nothing like relational unrest, right? Can you imagine the unrest that Peter would have felt and experienced as a result of that? Then we get it. In John chapter 21, while the disciples went back to doing, I guess, just what was comfortable to them, which was fishing, and then here the resurrected Jesus is walking around with a real body. I'm so tempted to do theology right now on new heavens and new earth, but I don't have time and I can't. But Jesus is walking around with a real body, having conversations with people and doing things like, in John chapter 21, cooking breakfast. It's amazing. This is, this is a very far stretch from our common notions of, oh, heaven, new heavens, new earth, clouds, harps, singing, praising, something that I'm supposed to be excited about, but I'm not. Jesus, just walking around, hanging out with people, cooking breakfast, pulls Peter over and has this unbelievable moment where he really exposes Peter's brokenness in a way that must have cut so deep and so hard. I'm not sure how Peter made it through this interaction. Peter, come here. Yes, Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And then a third time, fitting, right? This is reciprocation. This is a proclamation of holistic redemption. Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus is going to ask him three times, third and final, Peter, do you love me? And can you imagine at this point, the text doesn't tell us, but if Peter had a dry eye, I'd be surprised. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And in Acts chapter 4, you know what Peter's doing? He's feeding the sheep. In a way where he has been transformed out of his brokenness into boldness. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. That Acts chapter 4 is a proclamation of the gospel 
that it tells us that God uses our brokenness and transforms us into boldness. God transforms our brokenness into boldness. And as a result of this, we're captivated. Christ is seeking to captivate us. And then through us, Christ is seeking to captivate others. And it would be a good time to mention the truth of the gospel. There's no such thing as being too broken to be transformed. Jerry Bridges says, Your bad days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. God's grace runs downhill to the down and out. Even one of the most exemplary men in the New Testament denied that he even knew Jesus at Jesus' finest hour. And here we find him out of the brokenness, now embracing boldness as he's captivated by the beauty of the gospel in Christ. Don't think that you're too broken. Well, at the same time, don't think you're not broken. Because we all are, and we're in need of healing and captivation by Christ. Beyond this bigger idea of seeing that God uses our brokenness to create and transform boldness into our life, I want us to look more specifically as we see Peter and John's courage, which is a stark contrast to what we referred to earlier in Peter's life, as we see their connection to Christ. And then finally, it's amazing what freedom this brokenness and this restoration creates in Peter and John's life. To begin with, we see just their courage to stand up to the cultural pressure that not only was cultural pressure in general, but we've got to understand this was religious cultural pressure. To refer back to what I said earlier, Christianity at this point is barely a dot on the worldwide religious stage. I've said before in this series that in fact, in this time, there was no such thing as the word Christian and there was definitely no such thing as a religion called Christianity. In fact, whatever these people were doing, they were actually called irreligious and people referred to Christians as atheist. And here Peter is, out of his brokenness, experiencing this captivation by Christ and the restoration that they experienced that day over breakfast. And Peter and John are proclaiming with courage the gospel. They are embracing with courage the gospel. Specifically, what are they proclaiming? With courage? Well, Peter again, and he's done this three explicit times already in the first four chapters of Acts. Peter is explicitly proclaiming the resurrection. That's something that's significant. It's the center point and the centerpiece of the Christian religion. I refer you to the reflection at the front of the bulletin that I read during the announcements. If we were to pick one word, James Stewart the scholar says that we're going to summarize or describe Christianity, the one word is life after death, resurrection. And so Peter wants to make sure that these people know this has all been done, this healing took place, I'm here now, I'm proclaiming this boldly for one reason, for Christ, by His power, centered on Him. Oh, and by the way, He's resurrected. 
The Sadducees in our text particularly needed to know that as it was in direct contradiction of their belief system. They struggled, let's say, with the supernatural reality of life after death. And Peter wants to be very clear. It is Christ's name, the resurrected Christ's name. He shows courage in the midst of cultural pressure at large and religious cultural pressure. He proclaims truth. And of course, at this point, and there's a lot of points like this in this text, we have to ask ourselves, do we? Do we show courage in the midst of cultural pressure to proclaim the name of Christ? I find it fascinating. I actually don't watch him much because I'm old and I don't stay up late enough. But some of you would be familiar with Stephen Colbert. And regardless of what you think about him as a comedian, regardless of what you think about him politically, you can read this and fact check me on this. Stephen Colbert is a devout Catholic who boldly professes faith in Christ. And he has a myriad of stories that are well documented. I was even reading recently in a magazine called Relevant Magazine that highlights six points in the public eye, six episodes in the public eye over the last you know, few years, five to ten years, where Colbert has boldly proclaimed with courage the resurrection of Christ. And even more unpopularly, the exclusivity of salvation in Christ both to other people in the culture at large in the culture at large and then he actually has this unbelievably searing and honestly embarrassing for this other person episode with Bart Ehrman who is a staunch critic of Christianity and a professor uh, at North Carolina these days who used to be a professing Christian himself and now is on the front lines of seeking to tear down the gospel. And Colbert, I'd like to say in love, though I don't know if it was or not, destroys Bart Ehrman in love as he is proclaiming the resurrection of Christ and he's speaking with courage. Because, why? Because he's been captivated, apparently, by Christ. Probably because he's experienced brokenness in his life, and now that brokenness, because the gospel is being transformed into boldness. Before we move on, we have to ask the question, where is our courage? We are so characterized by fear today, we need good scholars and cultural anthropologists and sociologists and people that study like Brene Brown to write books entitled Daring Greatly, that is built upon in many ways the centerpiece of her text through her study on this issue. She's an expert in, guess what, brokenness, vulnerability, shame. And out of that, she writes about daring greatly and living a life of courage. And at that, she puts this classic Roosevelt quote at the centerpiece of her study, and then we'll move on. Roosevelt says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, 
who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends with himself, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The gospel captivates us to dare greatly and therefore to live a life of courage. It also, because Peter is captivated by Christ, Peter and John are, and because we can be as well, it would be important to look at how they were connected to Christ. Did you catch that part in the text? Two different parts early in this story as they do this amazing healing and as Peter preaches this incredible sermon, these people are annoyed. The text literally says that. They're irritated, they're befuddled, they're confused, they're perplexed and they're like, wait a minute, come here. What's going on here? How did you do this? We don't like that you did it, but we're a little bit like, hey, like, show us the trick. And Peter says, did you catch this? Filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not by our power, but by the power of Christ. They were connected to him. And then later the text goes on and they're still confused and amazed because did you catch this? And this ought to be good encouragement to all of us because this, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you're this person. Uneducated and normal, ordinary, relative to the glory and the beauty of the gospel. And these people are ordinary, uneducated men. However, the text tells us, and I don't know if you caught it, that they had been with Jesus. So this brokenness is the present reality. They're brought out of their brokenness as they're captivated by Christ to become more bold people. Well, how has that boldness continued to be encouraged in them? How are they continually captivated by Christ? Where are they continually drinking of the gospel? They are because they abide. Because they're still. Because they're dependent. Because they know that apart from Christ, they can do nothing And so they're connected to Him and they're filled, not with their own strength, not with their own education, not with their own connections. They're not filled with their influence socially. They're not filled with their pocketbooks. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was obvious to others from the text that they had been with Jesus. They were connected to Him. Two questions of application. One, what are you filled with? I mean, this would be a good question ultimately to ask, especially if you would put yourself in a place of seeking or skepticism. You would put yourself out of the faith or placing faith in Christianity. You're filled with something. We must concede that. Everybody intentionally or unintentionally is religious and is faith-based. You might not call it religion, you might not call it faith, but 
everybody's life rotates on some axis, has some foundation, is devoted to something. I would simply ask you this morning, what is that? What are you filled with and is it fulfilling? And if the answer is no, I would love to talk to you more about the gospel. But if that's not where you are, you're in a place of belief, ultimately, my question for you is experientially. So your status with God in Christ is set. I want to ask you about your experience with Christ. Is your life one that is filled with the Holy Spirit such to the case, not for show, not for pride, but for truth, that others can tell that you have been with Jesus? Just a simple question, and I, can't te- I don't have time, nor do I think it's my duty to tease out what that looks like in your life. But I sense that the Holy Spirit is laying this burden upon me and therefore you to explore this simple question. Can others tell that I have been with Jesus? And if so, what's the effect of that? What's the impact of that? Is it obvious that you are connected to Christ because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and as a result of that, others can tell that you have been with Jesus in His Word, in community, in the sacrament, in prayer, in worship. Because it was pretty compelling and confusing to those in the day as they saw Peter and John's passion and zeal and boldness. I got to ask this question. Why are we more zealous and passionate and bold about our political views than we are about the gospel? How can current events in America understandably create tension and controversy? No question, but a simple question. Is it appropriate for that to stir up more zeal and passion and boldness and courage than salvation in Christ? I'll let you and the Holy Spirit who can fill you deal with that question. I'm asking myself the same thing. So they're captivated by Christ because He's transferring them out of brokenness into boldness and we see that they're courageous and that they're connected to Christ. And then lastly, what this does is this creates this freedom. And this is so beautiful. And I love this in verse 19. In many ways, um, 19 is why I wanted to pick this text and preach this passage. So it could have been a lot shorter, and I'm sorry. Verse 19. Upon this questioning, perplexing, this confusion. So they called them and charged... This is 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And once again, it would be understandable. Lots of cultural pressure. Lots of religious pressure. Relatively small community of people that are going to back him at this point to just be like, yeah, you know, we'll kind of go the strategic subversive route. And we'll say yes, but we'll really act no. But at this point, they don't care. 
You know what? Oftentimes, broken people, because they're humble, don't care. Like, they don't care. And so Peter's like, I don't care. You know, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. I don't care. And so he says this, But Peter and John answered them, Look, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Think about this what you want. Here's my deal. For we cannot help, the NIV says, but to speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. What freedom. What freedom the gospel brings out of our brokenness into this boldness where they can embrace this reality. They're like, look, I don't care. I don't care what you... Think think if this was the guiding principle in our life because I'm telling you, I'm not saying this is easy to embody. I am telling you this should be the guiding reality in our life if we more fully understand the gospel. That each day we would wake up with one voice that matters, one voice that identifies us, one voice that tells us who we are. And it would not be the voice of others. And it would not be our own voice. And it would not be the voice of the culture. It would be the voice of God in the gospel that tells us, you think you're bad? Cheer up. You're far worse than you've ever imagined. You don't have a clue. You think you're loved? You're far more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you've ever dared to dream. What if that was the predominant voice day in and day out? Guess what? We'd be free people. Not fully. I mean, it's not new heavens, new earth yet, unfortunately. But truly, there is more freedom for us to live in. A freedom from others' opinions. A freedom from cultural pressure. A freedom to be this and do that. Say this and say that. And with the gospel, with truth, in humility, out of brokenness, say, I don't care. I can't help it. I have to speak about what I've seen and what I've heard. You know what the impact and the effect of that would be? Since this is the whole arc of the book of Acts? Revival. Look at the front of your bulletin. We'll close with this. Tim Keller. New York City. Who I would say knows a thing or two about witnessing gospel revival. Not only in that great city, but in great cities throughout the world. Revival occurs as a group of people who, on the whole, think they already know the gospel, discover that they really do not know it fully, or or fully know it. And by embracing the gospel, they cross over into living faith. When this happens, in any extensive way, an enormous release of energy occurs. Well, I'm telling you this, we need an enormous release of energy to occur in this room, in this city, throughout the world. And we pray that God would do that. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for people like Peter, who honestly is really similar to Jason Isbell and Tiger Woods. And I love that. And me, and these people. We're broken people, we're messed up. And we need you. So we pray that you would meet us in our brokenness, which is never too deep for you, and that you would bring transformation, and that through transforming us, we would not be able to help 
but to speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.